All right. Well, we're continuing our series, I Can Relate. We just got one more week after this before we kick off a new series. I'm really excited about the series that's going to follow. It's uh, The Road to Easter, and we're going to be walking through the final week of Jesus' life. Not many of us can predict, be in full health, and predict when the end of our life is going to be. That's a, that would be a pretty surreal thought. And how would you live out your life if you knew it was coming to an end very shortly? And, uh, and you'd prioritize some things. So you'd make some things pretty big deal. And so we're going to be walking through the things that Jesus did in that last week of his ministry uh, on earth. And it's going to be a, an awesome time. But we have one more week after this of I Can Relate. And I've enjoyed this a lot. We've talked about the importance and value of deep relationships. We talked about David and, and, and uh, Jonathan. We talked about... Um, how we relate in forgiveness. Pastor Ty talked about um, some uh, how how we relate. Remind me, I just just suddenly it just left left me. Um, he left the room, so I can just I'll just. Does anybody remember? And how we relate in. It's going to kill me now. Now I'll have to remember it for next service when he's in the room. Um, but it, uh, but we've had some some incredible uh, times together. Today we're going to be talking about a different aspect that you might not have expected. And today we're talking about how we relate. With ourself. Relating with ourself. Um, some of us woke up this morning and we looked in the mirror and thought, wow, what a winner. <sighs> I don't know why God decided to bless this world with such an incredible human specimen, but apparently he has, and here they stand. And we just are, uh, but, but others of us perhaps have a very different view of the reflection that's looking back at us. Others of us see that reflection and we have a lot of disdain. Others of us maybe look at that reflection and there's even self-hate. Not just on what you're seeing on the outside, but you see other things about yourself. Why am I so dumb? How could I have made those choices? Why can't you be more outgoing and gregarious and all these things? And we can actually have contempt and shame at what we see looking back at us. And over the last... Two decades, it's concerning. I looked it up. There's been a sharp incline and rise in suicide rates in the United States. Since, uh, since 19, or since about 2001, it's sharply increased as we've seen, especially in men, the amount of hopelessness and the feeling that their life is ultimately not enough and of enough consequence that they feel it's really not worth continuing living. And if the truth were to be really known, I think a large number of people in this room this morning are trying to hide things from the people around us. I think there's a large number of people that are trying to camouflage deep feelings of inadequacy, feelings of inferiority. We may be hiding agonizing fears of worthlessness or incompetency or even hurtful feelings of ugliness or helplessness towards ourselves. And we've been walking through this morass maybe for many years. And so today, it's underneath, we need to realize that underneath beaming smiles that we might see, there could be real senses of self-doubt and worthlessness and even possibly that self-hatred I talked about. And so it, today, I want us to understand, first of all, that self-esteem and uh, self-image and self-love have become a really hot topic. You see it in the news, you see it on social media, and, uh, and it's the subject of a lot of discussion. And I want you to know that this morning we're not going to just attempt to scripturalize some psychological fads, to, to tack a scripture to like, you're a good person. Um, there's an old Saturday Night Live sketch where this guy named Stuart Smalley looks in a mirror. I don't know if anybody are my age around there, and they look in the mirror and he says, I am good enough, I am smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And he's just trying to affirm himself in the mirror, telling himself, I'm a good person, people like me. And, and he's trying to tell himself all these things that he is valuable in. 
But let me tell you that, that the world doesn't need the church to be full of miniature Tony Robbins in here telling us that, that you're good enough and giving little tropes and little, little idioms to, to lift us up, lift our spirits, and to send us out and sell, sell t-shirts on the outside as you go. But we need people to know who God says they truly are. We need people to know who God says that they really have been created as. And so we need to have a biblical concept of self, a proper viewpoint of our own value, of our own purpose that sets us free to serve the living God. And that's what we're going to be talking about today because truly our own worst enemy can be ourself. We are our own biggest uh, obstacle to overcome in many ways, that we stand in the way of, of victory. And so um, today it's so important we have a biblically based concept of self, an understanding that liberates us, that sets us free from the thoughts that would hold us captive, the feelings that tie us in knots and incapacitate us from living purpose-filled, effective lives. And so research has actually shown that we tend to act in harmony with our mental self-portrait, the way we see ourselves. We don't If we don't like the kind of person we are, we think that no one else likes us either. And that influences then our social life, our job performance, our relationships with other people. And so thinking properly about ourselves is so important. It's even commanded in Scripture. Did you know that we are to have a proper way of thinking about ourselves? It's commanded in Scripture. Paul writes to the church in Rome. If you have your Bibles, you can open them with me. And we're in the Bible app. You can find us there where all our Scriptures are being uh, uh, derivative from, driven... I'm having a, I'm on the struggle bus today. Just stick with me, church. Okay. <laughs> Romans chapter 12, Paul talks to the church. He says in verse 3, Because of the privilege, or by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, the word that Paul uses here when he says think is phreneo, and that means to judge. That means to actually have an understanding, to balance out and to weigh. He says you need to weigh out and balance and have an understanding of who you really are. You need to weigh your... And he's he's actually speaking against pride here. You need to not think of yourself more highly, but it's actually talking about there's a balance. It's also not going the other extreme and thinking low of yourself, not, not just trashing yourself and saying I'm worthless. And so he says we need to have a balanced judgment uh, judgment of who we are in the light of God's revelation of who he is and in the grace that we live in. And so this means we need to take scripture and evaluate ourselves through the lens that it gives us. Because we, we really look at ourselves through a lot of different lenses. To get a little meta, I had a professor in college that said, you are not how you see yourself. And he said, you're also not how other people see you. And we're like, okay. He said, you are actually how you see yourself being seen by someone else. And I was like, that's really confusing indeed. (laughs) We have a better idea of who we are when we try to understand how other people see us through their eyes. and, and, And that's how we stand. But there's so many lenses we can view ourselves through. And we need to have right thinking about ourselves because we need to look through the lens of Scripture and who God says we truly are. Because without this... The reality is we're going to vacillate between two extremes. We're going to vacillate between fear and pride. We're going to vacillate between tremendous crippling insecurity and overconfidence. And so there's a distinction that we need to make between self-worth and pride. Because that can so easily be crossed, can't it? Our self-worth and and pride can be so easily crossed. Um, uh, we, We live in a world that says, how I see myself or how I want to see myself is all that matters. And everybody needs to affirm that. 
We live in a world that puts self first. And Paul warns in 2 Timothy 3.2 that in the last days, people are going to become lovers of themselves. I mean, if you think about social media in this way, we kind of build websites dedicated to ourselves. Right? We, we love ourselves. Look at me. Look what I do. I have, I have a social media page. I kind of do it too. We, we, we love self. But, but let me tell you that we need to measure ourselves, like Paul says, with sobriety. Seeing ourselves as God sees us. No more and no less. And how do we live with ourselves? How do we understand ourselves? So we're going to start in Psalm chapter 139. Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 139. David writes this psalm. Psalm 139, he says, For you created my innermost being, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, how I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. What an incredible thing David says. Look at how God has designed me. He's just marveling at this. Church, let me tell you, individual, let me tell you, you are the unique creation of God. You are the unique creation of God. You are not the product of billions of years of accidental evolutionary random processes that have come to be. You are not the result of some primordial goo that mutated enough times to just eventually spit you out. And that's what, that's why you're walking this earth. There is more to you than that. You may have even been told by a person in your life that you were an accident. You may have even been told by someone that you should have counted on that you were a mistake and unwanted. Can I tell you that you were designed with purpose and intent by God? You are no mistake. You are of God's divine design. He, you are the product of 23 chromosomes from your, from your mother and 23 chromosomes from your father that came together and created a unique individual of which there is no other like you. Geneticists say that the odds of your parents having another child like you are 1 in 10 to the 2 billionth power. There's no chance. There's no possible chance. No one has ever had your combination of eye color and looks and talents and personality and preferences and height and all these different things. Not even the doppelganger your aunt says she saw in the Cincinnati airport is exactly like you. You are unique. There's no one like you. You may look at yourself and say, well, I don't know what God was thinking. You look at yourself in the morning and say, I don't know what kind of cold medicine God was on when he designed me. No, let me tell you something, that we compare ourselves to a standard that is unrealistic and untrue. God designed us with purpose. There is a perfection that's been told to us and preached to us subtly that is untrue, that there is a perfection that doesn't exist. Every person has been created differently and most importantly, uniquely in God's image. I, uh, I, 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 I love podcasts. I was listening to one the other day. In, in world, after World War II, did you know that the United States Air Force didn't exist until after World War II? And after, after World War II, the Air Force started going and they got better and faster planes. The jet age came into being. And so they had more modern technology and all this stuff that was going on. But they were troubled because more and more pilots were dying. And they're going, we aren't even in war, just training and flying. Why are all these pilots dying? And they realized something. 
I know why. We're still building the cockpits to the dimensions of a pilot in the 1920s from World War I. We need to get the new average. So they went and they said, we need to do a study to see what the new average is. So they got a Harvard graduate named Gilbert Daniels. And they said, we need you to find out the average size of the the cockpit that it should be. And so Gilbert went and he measured over 4,000 airmen. Their, their height, their weight, all the vitals, the, the arm length, their leg length. He had 10 specific critical physical dimensions that he measured to make sure that they would fit correctly in, in the cockpit. And so he measured all these averages out. And after doing so, he thought, I wonder who among these is the exact average. The exact average of arm length, the exact average of height, the exact average of waist, and all those things. And he went and looked through that list. And do you know how many of those over 4,000 pilots fit the exact average? Zero. Not one pilot was exact average. And so he thought, well, I'll narrow it down. Let's, let's see how many fit within just three of those criteria. That, that meet average of just three of them. And he, he calculated it out. And do you know how many pilots were just three of those criteria? Less than 5%. For just three of this, those criteria. See, the truth was, they, were, they realized that by designing something that was supposed to meet the, the average pilot, it was literally designing something that fit nobody. And here's the thing. There's times that we think that there's some sort of mold that we need to fit in that everyone will appreciate. This is what I need to be. This is the universal. This is what will be appreciated. And not actually being who God designed us to be. And we feel all this pressure from the outside world. What does Paul warn? He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But we are so often trying to conform into some sort of fit that will be accepted by so many people when we're not being who God actually created us to be. And so Paul is explaining the vitality of all this unique placement of God, people in God's kingdom. And to the church in Corinth, he writes this to the church in Corinth. If you have your Bibles, it's in Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians, I should say. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 18. Paul says, but our bodies... Have many parts. And God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem the weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. Paul is talking about each person's unique placement in the church. How God created them to be. And how easy is it to look at people and you go, that's the standard, that's what I want to be. But, but really we're saying, oh, if only I could be a hand. How cool is a hand? It can pick stuff up, it can carry stuff. Or how cool would it be to be a, an eyeball? To actually be seeing and giving vision and doing all these things. I'm just a lowly kidney. Nobody even sees me. But can I tell you, without the kidney, you'd be in real trouble. Without, the, without these, all these parts working together. And so we so often try to say, I should be this. But let me tell you something. Paul is warning us about the comparison trap. There's a trap in comparison saying, this is what that person has. Or that is what this person has. And I wish I had it. This is what Craig Rochelle says. He says, comparison will either make you feel inferior or superior. And neither one honors God. When we start comparing, we'll either say, I'm a little bit worse than that. Or a little bit better than that, and neither one honors God. As David is writing Psalm 139, as we read earlier, he says, I am wonderfully made. I'm wonderfully made. I talked about looking in the mirror this morning. How many of us woke up this morning and looked in the mirror and said, That is one wonderfully made person? 
I got an honest hand. Okay, okay. You know what? That's kind of an awkward thing to think of. David literally said that. Like, I am marvelously made. What a wonder. Let me ask you. Have you ever said, I am wonderfully made? Have you said that about yourself? Is it, can I tell you, it's okay to say that about yourself? Scripture tells us to say that about ourselves. Let me ask you then, specifically, what is wonderfully made about you? Here's what I want you to do. Homework, in-class homework assignment. I want you to use your Bible app. This is, your Bible app, what you fill out, stays on your Bible app. It doesn't go anywhere. Or if you want, on, on a note card or something, I want you to write down right now something that is wonderfully made that God has designed you with. Go ahead. This is a real thing. This is not, this is not like a... This is a real question. What is something that God has wonderfully designed in you? For some of us, we might be having a hard time writing something down. We're kind of pretending we're not having to do that because it's hard to come up with something because we don't think of ourselves as wonderfully made. Did you hear that? Sometimes we have a hard time finding that thing because we think so lowly of ourselves that God's design isn't there, that is wonderful. What is wonderfully made in you? What feelings have come up as you write that down? What's God speaking to you as you think of those things? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, For we are God's masterpiece. Say that after me. We are God's masterpiece. One more time. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. As masterpieces, we are intended to do the good things God has in store for us. God has designed us to do. But it need, we need to recognize that we have been designed with beauty and purpose. God has created us as masterpieces. There's a story in the Old Testament. It's a long story about a guy named Moses. Now Moses had an interesting start to his life. He was floating on a river. A princess found him. As a baby, he wasn't like a grown man floating on a river and a princess. He was a baby floating in a river. A princess found him, brought him into the palace, raised him as royalty. For all we know, he could have been in line for the throne. I don't know, but he knew he was a Hebrew. And one day he saw another one of his Hebrew brothers being beaten by a slave driver. And he, it bothered him. And so he went and he killed the Egyptian. And he buried him in the sand. Well, it got found out and he ran for his life. He knew he was in trouble. He was going to get executed for, for murdering this guy. And so he lived in the wilderness for 40 years. For 40 years on the run on the land. And while he was in the wilderness, God showed up. There was this shrub that was on fire and it would not burn up. This sagebrush that would not burn up. It was not consumed. And he's going, what is going on? And he walks up to it. And from that burning bush, God speaks and he says, take off your shoes for where you're standing is holy ground. I would have been like, whoa, that's crazy. And so Moses takes off his sandals and, and, and he's standing there and he has this conversation with God. And God tells him, I see my people in Egypt, they're being uh, afflicted and I'm going to draw them out and I'm going to use you. And Moses goes into this discussion with God. I don't think you can use me, God. What if they say, oh, it's Moses. We don't really like that guy. What if they say, uh, we can't believe you. And God gives them all these signs. And then eventually Moses gets to this point 
where he's arguing with God. And finally, he says, Moses pleaded with the Lord. God says, I'm going to send you. And Moses pleads with the Lord. He says, oh, Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been. And I'm not now, even though you have spoken to me. I get tongue tied and my words get tangled. That's me today. Then the Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or do not hear, see or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord, now go, I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what to say. Our adequacy is derived from our Creator. We have been divinely created uniquely, but then our adequacy is derived from our Creator. God says, Moses, who even put you together? Who gave you that mouth that apparently stutters? Who put all this together? Is it not me? You go, I am the one who gives you your adequacy. I am the one that empowers you. Author Josh McDowell says this. He says that inadequate self-image robs us of the energy and the power to relate to others because we're so absorbed with our own inadequacies. Moses was nearly cut short from being used by God because he was so absorbed in his own inadequacy. All he could see was his shortcoming. All he could see was his failure. All he could see was that murder that happened a long time ago. And abandoning his people. All his past came into his mind. But, but, but God says, I am the one that qualifies. I am the one that creates. I'm the one that sends. For some of us in this room, we've disqualified ourselves already because of our past. You may say, if I had it to do all over again, then maybe... If I could be used by God, maybe if I could just go back and just not have the past that I had, he could use me in ministry. I could work in, 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 with, with kids ministry or youth ministry or in the worship ministry or in the greeting ministry or, or in the prayer ministry. But my past has kind of disqualified me. I've had a pretty rough past. And, and we use that as a way of actually disqualifying ourselves. Paul, again, I've been referring to him a lot, writes a letter to his young Padawan, Timothy. And uh, he writes him a letter and he's encouraging him. And he tells him this. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our, la- our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. Listen to this next sentence. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Paul recognizes that God is using him as one of the greatest missionaries that ever walked the face of our, our, our earth. But even as an adult, he went around persecuting the church. That's not just saying bad things about him online. He was seeing them killed. He was murdering people. And he says, despite my past that would disqualify me, the grace of God came down that I didn't deserve, and he qualified me. It's the Creator who qualifies us. Your past does not disqualify you. The things we carry, the guilt we carry, if God has forgiven us, we have a a new definition that's been put on our life. We can no longer say that that's disqualifying or now I just have to throw in the towel, I can't be used. God uses us because of who He is, not who we are. And lastly is this, if Kit will come to the guitar, our value is determined by our Creator. Our value is determined by our Creator. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, through Jesus, we are children of God now. 
And we have heirship to all that is God's through Christ. This is our greatest confidence that, that the King of Kings has adopted us as his sons and his daughters, not through any work of our own, but through the great mercy of Jesus. And we have our value because of what our Creator has put on us. This is an illustration I've done before. And in the past, I gave away a $20 bill, but with gas prices as they are right now, it would be irresponsible of me to give away a $20 bill, so I'm going to keep it. But uh, I have here a crisp $20 bill, and I, I had a young person come up and say, I want to give you this very beautiful $20 bill. And do you know what they said? Okay. I said, but wait. Now do you still want it? And they said, yeah. I said, but it's all folded up. So, what's it worth? $20. Okay. What about now? Do you still want it? And they said, yeah. It's a wadded up $20 bill. I want it. But it's all wrinkly and it's not what it used to be. What's it worth? $20. Okay, what about now? You are worthless. I just declared it worthless and I stomped on it. What's it worth? $20. Why is it worth $20? Because it's created by the United States Treasury and it's backed by our government who says it's worth $20. See, the value doesn't come from what I say about it. The value doesn't come to it by what happens to it over here. The value comes to it by the creator that created it and says this is what it's worth. And the backing of the power that created it. That's what we're seeing happen with the ruble right now in, in, uh, in Russia. As the power that backs it is not as powerful as it could be because all these nations have drawn away. Suddenly the power of that is gone. The power is what backs it. And if God created you and he declared what you're worth, and he said, you are worth the cost of my very own son, I will send to die. There is nothing that can take the power of God who has put that value on you. And so the value, it doesn't matter what you've been through, what people have said about you, the, whatever you have said about yourself, what you've walked through, God has still said, you are worth everything to me, my own son, I will send him to die for you. That is the value that you carry. You are worth everything to me. You're worth everything. And so this morning I ask, can you see yourself? And can you appreciate yourself in the capacity at which God sees you? Can you see yourself and forgive yourself to the capacity at which God has forgiven you? I think that's where a lot of us get hung up. God has forgiven so much. He's thrown it into the sea of his forgetfulness, but we keep dragging along our own failure and our own sin and just keep reminding ourselves and beating ourselves, self-flagellating with, with all the things we've done wrong. And Jesus says, don't you know what I paid for you? You are set free. You're set free this morning. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we close this morning. Let me tell you, church, you are a delight to God. You are fully loved. You are fully worthy and complete as a part of God's divine creation. And through what he did, 
through Jesus. We are sinful by nature, but we have been redeemed and we have been reconciled through Jesus who paid the ultimate price for us and said, that is what he's worth. That is what she's worth to me. So this morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're in this room, I think there are probably many. And you've been carrying self-hate, inadequacy, unusability. You feel like you are just, you've seen, you've compared, and you've weighed, and you just feel so unworthy. And this morning, you want to recognize your value to the Creator. You have been divinely designed with purpose. You've been divinely designed with value. And today, you need to have that restored. You need to have that word spoken to you that you've been carrying this along. And it's time to say, Jesus, I need to recognize my full value to you. Who I am created in your sight fearfully and wonderfully made. So this morning, if that's you and you've been carrying a weight, I want to pray with you. You can raise your hand and I'll pray over you with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Raise your hand high. Yeah. Who else? Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Yeah. Many in this room. Father, right now I pray for those that have been walking this road with the weight of inadequacy, with the weight of failure, with the weight of looking at themselves and feeling disdain even and contempt. Lord, I pray that you would show them who they are in Jesus' name, divinely loved, worth everything to you, and usable in the kingdom. You've called them to great things. Lord, I pray that when when the enemy would rush in and say, you aren't worth it, you aren't worthy, you don't have what it takes, remember your past, Lord, that you would remind the enemy of his future and that you would remind us of the victory that we have in Jesus' name. That each of us uniquely created by our God for a purpose and a calling. And we thank you for it, Father. Before we close, I want to do this one last thing, and I I do this every week. I want to give you the opportunity to give your heart to Jesus. Jesus died for you, just like I talked about. He paid the ultimate price for you. So if you've never given your life to Jesus, let me tell you, He thinks you are worth everything. And the Bible tells us that all of us have sinned. All of us have come short of God's glory. But even though our sin has separated us from God and has earned us death, Jesus' death for us gave us eternal life. And all we have to do is believe in Him and profess our faith in Him and then follow Him. And so right now, if that's you, if you want to give your heart to Jesus, if you've never given your heart to Jesus before, and now is the time, I want you to raise your hand and raise it high. I want to pray with you. Raise it high. Thank you, Jesus. All right. Church, let's pray this prayer out loud together. Dear Jesus... Thank you for coming for me. Thank you for paying the greatest price for me. I know I have value and worth because I was created by you. Let me live in that light. Let me live in the light that gives love to others, that raises others up to know who they've been created to be, deeply loved by the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. That's awesome.
Guys, I get the opportunity to do our connection cards real quick, and I just want to, uh, I guess, give you a little bit of tangibility to what we just heard. I remember in the first grade, uh, I had my first parent-teacher conference. I was like super stoked. I was like, my mom's going to come to school with me. She's going to hear about how awesome I am because I'm a cute little kid. I mean, come on. I had no problems looking in the mirror and be like, fearfully and wonderfully made. Come on, it looks good. Uh, and so we get there, and I remember like, I, uh, I remember the teacher was saying, hey, you know, Ty's really helpful. He does all this stuff. And then she's like, hey, Ty, can you do something? And she points out, and I do it, and I walk away, and I'm, you know, far enough that I don't think they knew I was listening. And I remember her saying, like, hey, uh, Ty's not a very good student. He gets distracted. Uh, he gets bored. He does all these things. I, I just don't think education is going to be easy for him. And I remember overhearing here in this, in the first grade, and it got to me. As a first grader, I was like, oh. I don't like school. I'm not very smart. Like, okay, I didn't know that. Good to know. So I go through, and in second grade, I remember uh, my teachers harping me, harping me, do your homework, do your homework. And I'm like, hey, I'm not very good at school. I'm not that smart. And I remember I finally did it, my homework one time and turned it in. And during a parent-teacher conference, the teacher said, Ty turned in his homework once, but it seems too good for him. So did you write it? And my mom was furious. She's like, no, he wrote it. And they didn't believe me. And I just remember sitting there, and I was like, like, I'm just not a good student. Like, I'm not going to do it. And so this goes on. And I remember at 15, I was uh, paying my uh, weekly principal visit because, you know, we're good buds like that. And my teachers really like to encourage me to <laughs> go see them. We just had a really special bond. But I remember going and he gets my mom on the phone and puts it on speakerphone. And he's like, tell your mom what you did. And I, you know, I won't tell you guys. It's, it's special. But uh, I did those things. And I just remember the counselor talking to my mom and was like, I... I don't know what to do with Ty. I'm just going to tell you, he's probably going to be in prison before 10 years is up. And I just remember sitting there thinking, okay, like, I don't come from a family that on either side that have done particularly well. Um, there's been a lot of addiction. There's been, you know, most of us haven't, most of my family hasn't graduated high school. Like, there's not a lot going on. I just remember thinking, like, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to be. And luckily, at 15, I stumbled into a youth group. I played guitar. Um, I thought it was cool that they played guitar, and there was a lot of pretty girls, and I'm like, they're stuck in this room for me for with 90 minutes? Like, even if you're bad at this, 90 minutes, you, you can just keep trying. It's going to be good. And I just remember I loved it, and I remember talking to my youth pastor and him telling me these things, like, dude, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has a plan for your life. And I was like, that's, that's cool, bud. You don't know who I am. Like, but eventually, God captured my heart. And I remember even going to Bible school, and one of the professors coming to me, and they're like, I just don't see... God's call on your life. And I remember sitting there and be like, well, that's cool, man, because God told me I'm called. And I'm like, it, I, I get that you don't see it, but I know that God's called me. And it changed my perspective. Yes. Knowing what God says about you, knowing who God created you to be gives you freedom. Yes. It gives you freedom. So as we're filling out this connection card, I just want to remind you guys, you have freedom in your identity in Christ. I think that if each one of us were honest, there are things in our life that we believe that we know are not true and yet we struggle in our hearts to believe them so for each one of us on our connection cards this morning i want to i want us to write two things firstly what's something that the enemy or your flesh continually reminds you of that you know is not true that you need to give to god what is something in your life that you continually struggled and believe even though it's inconsistent with who god created you to be write that down and secondly because we're a people that influence people we're people used by God. Let's write down one person that we know that we need to encourage in their identity. How many of us know that we see people every day 
that are lost, that don't know who they are, and they need to be reminded that God loves them, that God's chosen them, that God has a plan for their life. Because, guys, can I tell you, I don't know where I'd be if somebody didn't do that for me. So I want to encourage you guys, let's be people of God who God uses to change people's destiny, to change the trajectory of their life. God, right now, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are God that changes lives, changes destinies. I pray every day when we look in the mirror that we be reminded that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God, that this isn't some romanticized vision of ourselves, but this is a manly man that looks in that mirror and says, God made me. God chose me. God, I think of what you said in, in your scripture that we are a holy priesthood, a chosen people. God, I pray that we'd walk in that boldness knowing that you created us that our mindset would be shifted, that our lives would begin to change. And we thank you for this and so much more. In your name we pray, amen. Let's have the ushers come forward and take our, our offerings. identity as purpose children of God.